This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast in partnership with Scottish Enterprise. I'm joined this week by Energy Voice reporters Hamish Penman and Ryan Duff. Hello, chaps. Uh, I'm finding myself wondering again, have we ever had this combination on the pod before? No, it's a new one. Yeah, we're ever-changing, ever-evolving. Ever-changing. This is going to be gold, I can feel it. The optimism, it really is. Uh, We're riding a, a wave here. Okay, so we're talking... Well, we were talking a lot about the windfall tax last week, and a few hours after we recorded, we had a tip-off regarding job cuts at the US oil firm Apache's North Sea Base in Aberdeen, and, uh, well, a a few items to get into here with that. Um, When asked, Apache told us that it was suspending all North Sea drilling over the burdensome regulatory and tax regime here in the UK, a clear reference to the windfall tax. And they said these assets have become less competitive compared with others in their portfolio globally. Apache did not, um, in the first instance, confirm job cuts. They did laterally after we put our story out and forced their hand to an extent. There was a town hall last week on Wednesday uh, about this suspension of drilling plans, but we understand in the hours prior to that, Workers were taken to HR, told they were being made redundant without warning, and they had extra security guard, uh, were told, ready to escort people out of the building. Um, we understand somewhere around 30 people were cut. There are questions about whether or not more could be on the way. We'll get to that in a second. But Apache is blaming the windfall tax here. And in letters to those who were made redundant, they cited rising costs in the basin for them. The people I've spoken to who were affected made it quite clear that a big, big drive in recent years for them has been keeping costs down for Apache. And they noted items like, again, things like contractor rates, for example, have only gone up modestly. And crucially, they argue Apache is still making a chunk of cash from the North Sea. Bottom line are just fed up with the region versus more lucrative areas like Suriname, Egypt and onshore US. So that's not to say the windfall tax has not had an impact. Clearly it has. But the feeling I detected was the impact is perhaps being played up, I would say. And it's being used as the justification for these job cuts and the suspension of drilling. And certainly, you know, we've seen previously job cuts announced at Harbour Energy. We know that was a bloated organisation from the Chrysler Premier Oil takeover. So again, you know, by virtue of all of this, the windfall tax has had an impact, um, but as they say, never waste a good crisis. And I think even if we take the words of each party, Apache and those employees made redundant with a good pinch of salt, perhaps the narrative being pushed isn't necessarily the full picture, and it's good to question that constantly. In terms of the future, um, all of this has left us with several questions, um, chief among them being, has Apache not breached its licensing rules here? Suspension of all drilling means suspending not just exploration, but workovers, infill wells, the kinds of items that keep their barrel and 40s fields going. These are old assets that needs these kind of workover drilling plans to continue to extract from them. And the North Sea Transition Authority, the regulator, its stewardship rules require maximising economic recovery from the North Sea. And by definition of suspending drilling, Apache isn't doing that. So kind of put that question to the NSTA. The NSTA have powers to withdraw licences or indeed to remove operators from assets. And to be fair to them, there's probably a lot they would want to say, but felt being responsible that they couldn't. Uh, That's fine. Driving the news agenda isn't necessarily their priority. But 
you know, if, if a company's blatantly flouting safety rules, you might expect HSE to at least confirm they're looking into it. Similarly for Opred, if environmental rules are being shown some degree of disregard, and the NSTA couldn't even say, yes, we're looking into all of this, which I found uh, surprising. At any rate, um, the perceived wisdom here is it's messy, it's probably going to go on for a long time. Apache are obligated under or MER rules, and we'd expect the NSTA to kind of quietly remind them of that. Um, if Apache isn't budging on the strategy, though, and if the windfall tax stays in place as it's projected to, then something has got to give. We don't expect the NSTA will step in on the assets, because as Panmur Gordon suggested to us, a sale of the business looks like the most likely next step, and certainly the affected workers I spoke to had suggested something similar. Um, if the NSTA were to threaten some sort of action there, then any sale could potentially be undermined, if that makes sense. Any player coming in could kind of just lowball any deal. So that's where we stand. Apache hasn't confirmed any of this, of course, as regards a sale, but it's difficult to see following logic where this goes. Um, and just last couple of points, 30 jobs now. Um, there are jobs linked to to drilling, obviously, within Apache. Uh, the Ocean Patriot rig is is hired, but it's about to come off-site um, because they cancelled the contract. I think there's possibly a question mark there in terms of what that leaves those departments in, and Apache have not uh, told us when, when asked about it. And to summarise, you know, Apache's been in the North Sea for 20 years, investing pretty, uh, pretty consistently. So I think it's a surprise for a lot of people um, to, see, to hear this, but um, it would seem, speaking to the, the workers, that the writing might have been on the wall for a while. So that's me rambled on for a long, long time. Any thoughts on that, guys? Uh, do, do you think it is a surprise? I can't say I was that shocked by it. I think, first of all, the, the Ocean Patriot uh, news in what is it end of February that they're going to be releasing that rig was was like you say white writing on the wall and yeah Apache have been investing for twenty years obviously they took over forties from BP was I suppose their big their big move but their strategy is largely out of step with their other US counterparts they've stuck out like a bit of a sore thumb in recent years so Exxon have gone Chevron have gone Marathon have gone all right they're kind of the only US major that are still operating in the base. And so based on that, it was probably always going to come and, and perhaps the windfall tax is a, is a useful, um, is a useful thing to blame for, for a strategy that they've perhaps wanted to implement for, for quite a while. Um, it's obviously a still brutal though. It's never like to report on, on job cuts. Um, I understand I've spoke to John Boland from Unite earlier this week that most of them are on shore um, he didn't really know too much at that stage. It's still pretty early days. Um, but yeah, not a nice story for anyone in Aberdeen, but it looks like some of these assets could be up for grabs soon and wonder who will go in for, for some of them. It might well be some of these kind of smaller private equity back players that will try and draw the last bits of value out of out of fields like 40s. Yeah, you, you've got to wonder. I mean, yeah, the surprise, yeah, it, it, the points you make are, are, are solid, Hamish. Um, I, I guess 20 years of pretty steady investment, and they've been fairly good with the exploration for a while, but as you say, the the Ocean Patriot stuff perhaps was writing on, on the wall, um, but nonetheless, a, a pretty hard line to take after 20 years in the North Sea, and I think other companies would be less knee-jerk. Um, yeah, um, who would come in? For, I mean, look, I, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, 
40s and Beryl, I gather Beryl has got quite a bit of potential still in it. 40s obviously is a very aged asset at this stage. Um, I wonder what kind of decommissioning liabilities are kicking around with that one and who indeed would pick it up um, for the last kind of, uh, well, I don't know how much longer it's got in terms of life, but certainly it is a late life asset. I think that's probably fair to say in terms of how old it is, a mature asset. Um but yeah, it's it's difficult to see where else this goes, how long this process could take, and I wouldn't want to speculate any further on that. But it's um, yeah, it's a pretty horrible piece of news for everyone um, involved. Uh, again, I think perhaps we need to take the windfall tax stuff with a pinch of salt um, to an extent, because based on what the workers have been saying, it's it's not necessarily the full picture, um, but certainly that's what it's being um, landed on. But um, but yeah, so I think we'll we'll just keep an eye on Apache there, but um, we'll be casting our eye next to Shell and big investor pitch that it's been making in New York City. The Making Scotland's Future Conference, previously known as the Scottish Manufacturing Advisory Service National Manufacturing Conference, will take place on the 22nd of June at the Royal Bank of Scotland Gogoburn HQ in Edinburgh. A key highlight in Scotland's manufacturing calendar this year's event has a strong focus on productivity and emerging opportunities. Businesses attending can expect to take part in workshops and best practice sessions on topics including supply chain resilience, industry 4.0 technologies, leadership and culture, operational excellence and sustainability. Book today by visiting makingscotlandsfutureconference.scot. Okay, Hamish, you were dialing into New York yesterday for the big Shell Capital Markets Day. Uh, bring us up to speed. Yes, I think... It was kind of, I think it was seen as a while so when the new CEO, or not new anymore, he took a good few months into it, took over at the start of the year. But his first real opportunity to put his stamp on on Shell to kind of point, to show the direction he's wanting to, to point the company in. Um, and a lot of this did come kind of ahead of the Capital Markets Day, which was held in New York yesterday. Um, so I think the the presentation itself was to add a bit of narrative, a bit of meat on the bone of, of some of these um kind of statistics that had already come out. Um, so just to kind of rattle through those quickly. So kind of the headline, I think, is that Shell is looking to scale back its its capital spending. So to between $22 billion and $25 billion a year um, for 2024 and 2025. Uh, there's plans to bring down operating costs by as much as $3 billion by the middle of the decade. Um, and there was a real focus on driving shareholder value. So both while Sawan and uh, CFO Sinead Gorman made the point that the company is undervalued against certainly its US um, peers, that was something I wrote on earlier this year as well, kind of a mix of reasons for that, more focus on ESG on the European side, whereas uh, the likes of Exxon and Chevron are kind of still got pretty strong petroleum plans. Um, so in order to address that, to close the gap, uh, they're looking at um, some pretty substantial share buybacks as well. So $5 billion back to shareholders in the second half of 2023, um, subject to board approval. So that will undoubtedly uh, irk quite a lot of people, given the, the, the amount that's already been handed back to shareholders in recent years. Um, but they're hoping that that will improve the valuation. And they were certainly making that case yesterday to investors in New York. So there was also a real focus on discipline was the word that was used time and time again, um, particularly financial discipline. And it seems that where it was perhaps this wasn't the case before, while someone will be keeping a pretty 
tight hand on the purse strings. Um, and there was an acknowledgement that perhaps Shell has overspent in the past, it, certainly compared to its peers. And they're looking to address that. So kind of he used the phrase or the phrase was used of a ruthless approach to discipline and simplification um, and that each project would be scrutinized um, pretty closely as to whether it will it deserves cash or not. Um, and Sinead Gorman said only the most attractive projects will indeed um, receive funding and that Shell is going to be unemotional with its spend. So it's not going to invest in projects for purely for nostalgia's sake. Um, it's only going to allocate cash to those that really will be able to make a return on that investment. So, I mean, in the, along that line of thinking, Shell announced plans to exit Pakistan after 75 years there. That's pretty bad news for the Pakistani economy, which is tanking at the moment. Um, we would have liked to, there was a journalist call later on in the day and we were kind of primed to ask how that would impact the North Sea and particularly the UK where they said they were planning, Shell said they were planning to invest $25 billion, um over the next few years. Now, annoyingly, we didn't get a chance to ask that question despite sitting on the call for an hour, but that's a personal gripe. Nobody else wants to hear about that. But there was a, an interesting line from, well, there are a number of them actually, but the, the one that stuck out was this Dutch climate ruling, um, which is still kind of looming over Shell and I suppose looming over all of these plans that it keeps making, particularly, particularly around oil production, which is says it wants to keep steady up to the end of the decade. Um, that's caught the attention of a number of people it was kind of a not entirely a reversal of a previously announced goal to cut production by 20 percent against 2019 levels because while Sawan says that Shell has already achieved that um but th there was a kind of a commitment to to keep reducing by one to two percent up to the end of the decade so that's now not going to be the case but this this climate ruling would perhaps impact uh this this uh, idea to keep to keep flows steady. So, twenty twenty one, a court in the Hague ordered Shell to cut its emissions by forty five percent by twenty thirty compared to two thousand and nineteen levels. Now, Shell obviously appealed this ruling. It was seen as a real win for climate for the climate lobby at the time, um, and it's now kind of stuck in the court systems. Uh, we'll see how long it takes to progress. Twenty twenty four, twenty twenty five was when Shell is expecting maybe some movement on this, but they said they have already put in a contingency plan should they lose this appeal. So it was a pretty blunt response. Um, while Sawan simply said we would let go of customers, we'd stop selling. We'd look at what the least profitable molecule is, say to our customers, go and find somebody else that sells it. Um, and Shell would achieve the 45% and he said it would not make a difference to the rest of the world. Um, so quite a... Sounds a little bit bitter, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a, not quite a toys out of the pram situation, but um, but not not too far off. It's a, But but it's perhaps not that, not that surprising. We've written in the past but. Maybe Shell would just divest some of their assets. Um, if they're putting them into the hands of those that aren't that well accustomed with them, then there's a chance that emissions from said assets could actually increase. Um, so it's in terms of the the net damage to the planet, it it actually uh, would actually harm it harm it further. So I mean that was perhaps a confirmation of that strategy. Um, but he does say they've got plans to in place should should they uh, should this court appeal not come in their favour. So quite an interesting one there. Um, but yeah, I suppose the whole the whole um, focus of yesterday was more value with less emissions. Um, and that's that's Shell's plan to, to try and attract investors and, and to close this, this valuation gap. 
Yeah, it sounds like an interesting, sounds like a lot of ground covered there, Hamish. Um, I think, firstly, yeah, the, the 20 to 25 billion pounds in the UK spending, it sounds like it sounds like the UK remains kind of core, clearly Shell is listed here. Um, nonetheless, it's an important question. I think you'll be getting on to the press office today. <laughs> it's early doors, and I appreciate that, and perhaps an unfair question, but clearly the, the whole point of this exercise was to realign Shell with kind of its US peers in terms of its valuation at share price. Is there any indication at this stage that that is has been or is on course to be achieved from what we've seen so far? Uh, just looking at the Shell, um, how Shell is trading this morning. Um, so at the time of recording, they're up 0.5%. So uh, early days, but, but perhaps not the um, the springboard data they'd have hoped. But. I guess time will tell once the strategy comes into place. Um, as you say, I think a lot of this was trailed, wasn't it? So perhaps the market isn't responding immediately. And, and a lot of it is a case of, I think there's... Uh, there are obviously stats and plans in place around reducing um, spend and things like that, but a lot of it, I think, is more of a kind of um, change of narrative within Shell, change of the kind of company ethos away from being this this kind of bloated um, behemoth to a to a kind of leaner, more agile, perhaps decision making and and. Well, someone was actually asked by this by one investor um, in New York about how he intends to kind of filter this this new approach down through the the, the company, um, and he said that there's going to be lots of meetings with with high level and, um, and and things like that. And Shell has kind of scaled back on its executive leadership team um, in order to, I think, to achieve that that nimble decision making. So I think a lot of it will take some time to set in, but also these these commitments on rolling back spending and on reducing operating costs they're not that far away we're only two years away from from when shell is hoping to achieve this so you'd hoping that i'm sure they'll be hoping that they'll see some um bang for their bang for their buck uh, on the stock market soon enough um i think the focus back towards oil and gas is certainly going to appeal to the to the u.s investors and um, not so much in the uk i would be intrigued to see what happens there it, it felt like there was a real attempt to to win over um those investors in new york that have likely been favoring exxon chevron and the likes in, in the last few years uh interestingly there was very little reference to wind actually in 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 the whole of the presentation yesterday um there was on renewables but what there was um or low carbon rather and what there was it was carbon capture really um and hydrogen uh, not much for wind not much for solar so perhaps that's pretty telling of of the way that shell is trying to approach the u.s market indeed okay so uh well it looks like green is if not out certainly following back and uh well black is back for shell but uh okay well thanks hamish uh next up we're on to offshore wind right after this with so much happening in the energy news cycle recently, with Labour planning on banning North Sea licences if they come to power at the next general election, and the industry waiting with bated breath for the Rosebank approval, we spoke to Offshore Energy's UK Chief Executive, David Whitehouse, on all things happening in the energy sector right now. Podcast out now. 
Okay, uh, and next up we've got Ryan. He is still here. He's been quiet all podcast, but he's just patiently waiting for his turn there. Um, Ryan, uh, quite a lot of focus on offshore safety, clearly, that we do here at Energy Voice. Um, but I guess in terms of industry-wide, it doesn't tend to focus so much on offshore wind. But tell us a bit about some of the work that you've been looking at. Yeah, I've been uncharacteristically quiet today. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was looking into G+, uh, the health and safety organization within offshore wind, they released a report into the amount of incidents in the sector globally uh, throughout 2022. G Plus is based at Energy Institute, and they found that 348 incidents were reported globally last year. The UK was leading the chart, if uh, for want of a better phrase, uh, in terms of the number of incidents. They were uh, quite considerably higher than the next country along, which was Taiwan, which G Plus described as a reporting a significant increase in incidents over 2022 compared to 2021. However, according to the uh, report this week that I believe Hamish uh, looked into, uh, Renewable UK said that the the country is approaching 97 gigawatts of offshore wind. So maybe the reason for such a disparity between the UK and Taiwan would be the country's just maybe a little bit more ambitious with its offshore wind goals, maybe we've got more developments, and that's possibly why naturally there would be more incidents reported. But yeah, essentially the the UK was still leading that chart. Um, Globally, there was 225 high potential incidents reported throughout the year, which was a 10% increase. So despite overall incidents being down, that high potential incidents were still up. So yeah, looking into that, uh, overall though, it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, there was a 69% decrease in the number of emergency response medical evacuations throughout the year. Um, that went down from 62 uh, incidents that needed uh, emergency response in 2021 to 19. So that is a significant drop showing maybe a slight progression towards the uh, towards safety in the sector. But yeah, you're right, uh, Alistair, we don't often see something targeted very specifically at offshore wind when it comes to these safety uh, statistics. And it was quite interesting to see the breakdown, not just within, like, between countries, but also where these incidents take place. The majority of them took place on vessels, not turbines. Um, there were even some reported onshore for like you know fabrication and decom work as well. So, you know, like there's, there's something to be done at every, every level of of the the sector not just i think when you think of working offshore wind you probably immediately think of work on turbines that are already out there but you know there's the 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 most uh, the majority of the incidents did come from vessels at sea working in the offshore wind sector. So I was just going to ask, I mean, so what, what kind of constitutes a high potential incident? I mean, it sounds a bit like a near miss to me and that could have gotten a lot worse. And I guess the second point there, just touching on what, what we're talking about, you know, is there enough focus on safety in this hugely growing space? A wind farm, you know, it isn't a production facility like an oil and gas platform, but yeah, heavy lift components out to sea on vessels. I mean, perhaps we need to have a, a sharper look at this kind of thing on a more regular basis. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have the report up right now in front of me so I can't dive into uh, very specific figures but yeah G plus did a a really great job going into the minutia of things you know going into dropped objects and yeah these high potential incidents of things that could have went very wrong but didn't 
the uh, one you know very positive takeaway is there was no fatalities in the industry globally last year, which was obviously obviously a great thing. Uh, but the, yeah, I think maybe we do need to focus a little bit more on offshore wind. You know, I think when you go to these these conferences uh, about uh, HSE, it's it's often mainly focused on oil and gas because we know that that's a dangerous industry to work in, right? You know, there's been there's been numerous incidents over the years in which people can look back on and go, we don't want that to happen again. And I think sometimes there's a sort of rhetoric that goes, well, we need to bring that mentality of we don't want this disaster to happen again into offshore wind, because if not, we're going to have a major incident that's going to cause, you know, lasting impacts in the sector that then will be that we don't want that to happen again. So I think that's something that uh, that needs to be sort of focused on, and that yeah, the offshore wind sector does need to sort of take those lessons learned from oil and gas to make sure that history doesn't repeat itself. I think. So I mean, just to play a degree of devil's advocate here, uh, this G plus um, praising its vital reporting work, and I'm not saying that the report is not helpful and 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 crucial. But, you know, this is a group, if I'm not mistaken, it is kind of supported by wind developers. Um, I note that not one company um, is mentioned negatively in this report. There's not much transparency in terms of a company-by-company breakdown. Um, You know, would it be a more effective way of reporting and perhaps delivering the message more strongly if it was an HSE, for example, um, reporting on this annually and, yeah, naming and shaming, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And maybe naming and shaming isn't the right way to go about it. Maybe not the right way to describe it. You know, earlier this year, we had the helicopter incident with Total Energies. And then a few weeks later, they were at OEUK's HSE conference. And they were saying, this is what happened. This is what went wrong. This is what we've learned from it, you know, to try and share with the industry. And they were praised for that. You know, they were praised for, you know, we need to all be more open about this and admitting fault when when it arises. So, yeah, I think maybe the idea of a company-by-company breakdown would kind of help. And, you know, much like with, uh, with the UK, it might not be a case of, oh, well, let's say, for example, BP is at the top of that list. Well, maybe BP's got more more offshore wind assets than the next company down and that's why so it, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be a name and shame as much as a well what what is this company doing to promote a safety culture that helps and then the industry can learn from it because at the end of the day we're not competing on safety right you know you might be competing on profits you might be trying to be you know the most profitable the most the highest producing or whatever company in in the space you're operating in but you're not you're not hoping your HSE is better than everyone else's. You kind of want everyone to be safe when they go to work because everyone's entitled to to go to work and come back safe, right? Doesn't the fact this is a, a report compiled by these companies and the fact that they've chosen not to share that information, I mean, it would suggest that the, the approach is opposite. They're worried about disclosing that. And and I, I, I hear what you're saying. The Total thing, everyone in the room when that was announced and I was there, they were so shocked that they had taken that approach because it is so unusual for an oil and gas company to step up and say, look, this is us disclosing what happened. This is us trying to be open and affect change. I just think it's, without wishing to sound cynical, it's like a cultural leap to get to that point of, oh, we're going we're gonna to share everything that's that's taking place for the greater good. You know, I just, 
I don't know. I'm being I'm being very cynical there, Ryan. I think I think your answer was a good one, but I'm just uh, yeah. no. I, I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah, I mean, we've had years of you know don't talk to the press, right? That was kind of the oil and gas industry's motto for a very long time, right? It was only if something goes wrong, you release a, a statement. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that is something to be considered. But then going back to that whole offshore wind should learn from oil and gas. I think that culture does probably need to change a little bit so people can be a little bit more open and chat about their experiences and what they've learned and their best practices to ensure that that transition happens. Because otherwise, yeah, we do risk losing all the lessons learned over the last 40 years and having to have more major incidents to learn from, which is not what anyone wants. Very well said indeed. Okay, well with that that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. We'll be back next week. Thanks to Hamish and to Ryan for joining me. Thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.